welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Sue Carter. She's a world-renowned researcher who has discovered important new developmental functions for oxytocin and vasopressin and has implicated these hormones in the regulation of long-lasting neural effects on early social development, as well as stress and chronic pain. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Sue, welcome to the show. Um, I'm going to finish the introduction a little bit, and so I can't do much because, first of all, she's a professor of psychology. She's a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University in Bloomington. She's the former executive director of the Kinsey Institute and a ready professor of emeritus of biology. So she's authored over 400 publications. She's edited five books. She has over 32,000 references to her publications. And the main thing with Sue Carter, as a physician and clinician, um, I not heard of her or her work on oxytocin, which turns out turns out to be one of the most important molecules in this universe. So Sue, I'm going to call her Sue, her, Dr. Sue Carter. Um, it's just been a wonderful resource for our work group. And she's a person who brought oxytocin to life in a really powerful way. So Sue, welcome to the show. And, um, you know, we've worked together right now a couple of years off and on. Thank you, David. It's a real pleasure to be here. So Sue, um, she, how long have you been in the, when did you, what year did you start your research? I started my training to try to become a researcher in 1966. Okay. Another century, a completely different time. Right. And what's happened is that when I was in medical school, it's been a while also where oxytocin was sort of glossed over. It was a pregnancy lactation drug. We give give it to start you know, delivering and that type of thing. So we really never thought much of oxytocin. It turned out there's two molecules that Sue has highlighted, um, prolactin and oxytocin amongst many, many other things she's done with the hormonal system. So what happened, how did you happen into the oxytocin world? Well, thanks for asking, David, because it's, as I indicated, I started my my training in the 1960s. I went to graduate school in um, biology, ecology, eventually neurobiology, but I was always in search of an understanding of human behavior. Uh, When I finished graduate school, I was very frustrated because I was in my own opinion, not studying something important. I was trying to study a construct that was, and still is called, social attachment. And that's a very vague word. If I'm a, you can be attached to anything. So it it wasn't satisfying to try to understand it because I wasn't sure what it was. And I switched over and began to study reproduction Um, mostly steroid hormones. Steroid hormones are fantastic because they always do something to behavior. But then 
as the story progressed, I gave birth to our first son in 1980, and I was given oxytocin. And I was not prepared. I'm very methodical when it comes to what I let people do to me. So getting this hormone was quite a shock. And I didn't have time to do research on it, but it wouldn't have mattered because there wasn't any science to help me answer the questions I was concerned with. So I began a journey. It's 42 and a half years. I can always date this from my son's birthday. And I'm still on this journey. It's turned out to be extremely interesting. So the effects of oxytocin are profound. And I like to jump ahead of the story a little bit. And can you just give us sort of a synopsis of three or four of the main effects oxytocin has in the human body? Again, you can reinforce this, but there's two drug, two hormones called prolactin and oxytocin, I'm sorry, oxytocin and vasopressin, which are cousins. Again, you taught this to us. And they both are some of the older molecules in the body, have profound effects on many different organ systems. And I know this is a horrible question, but you can just summarize the difference between prolactin and oxytocin and what are the benefit, benefits of having oxytocin levels that are adequate and what are the consequences of not having it and then I know we can talk about the vasopressin a little bit because having high vasopressin levels is good for fight or flight and defense and we need it but sustained vasopressin is, is a bit of a problem so anyway all I can tell you I can't even put into words how much depth Sue has added to this field I mean, like you said, when you started, you said about 1980, there wasn't any literature at all. Basically. And how many, how many papers would you estimate now? This is a horrible question. Also, I mean, there are a lot of research papers now. If you go on PubMed, the main search engine for scientists, you will find over 30,000 papers on oxytocin. And you can trace these kinds of papers back and see that there was very little there, almost nothing before 1980. Part of the problem, David, which is something you've brought up here, perhaps accidentally, is that oxytocin was thought of as a hormone of lactation. Right. And they would say that um, prolactin, another molecule we won't have time to talk about, Prolactin sets the table. Oxytocin serves the meal. Okay. So oxytocin was a molecule that caused milk ejection. Okay. That was a death knell to its study because that plus the fact that it had a role in birth meant to some people that this was a female reproductive molecule. And up through as late as 1987, I've seen papers in which they say, erroneously, that oxytocin has no known effect in men. Really? Really. Now, okay. if you really want to understand why you saw very and heard very little about it, both in medical school and through the whatever 30 or 40 years since you were in medical school. 
it's because it was thought to have an extremely narrow set of functions. That was completely wrong, but it took a long time to unearth the reality because of really prejudice and misogyny. People are afraid of women and they're afraid of women's hormones. And I'd be happy to prove that to you just by <laughs> talking to people in the field. And so we are, we were held back by a kind of bizarre sexual politics. Um, when the portal was opened, when the gate was opened and people began to study oxytocin, they found it's receptors in every tissue in the body, including of particular importance, the second highest compared to either mammary glands or uterus was the thymus. Okay. And, um, could you explain the thymus to the audience? Well, I could try, but it's part of the immune system. It's part of the acquired immune system. And I believe also the innate immune system. Now that's jargon. What I can tell you is that oxytocin educates the thymus. It teaches it what to respond to in later life, including the tissues probably of the baby. Mom is in a very difficult situation when she has a fetus on board because she has to nurture physiologically that infant and not reject it, but it's full of foreign tissue. And that field has not grown. You would think that would be in a hugely important field. And I think it is, but the role of oxytocin in the thymus is hardly studied at all. But here's some that will make us take note. Oxytocin levels probably regulate bone and the remodeling of bone, both its development and its capacity to be remodeled. So in your business, you are in the business of physically trying to remodel the spinal cord. Well, I'm telling you, oxytocin is doing that every day. And animals that are genetically mutant for oxytocin have osteopenia or actual osteoporosis. They are a mess when it comes to their bones and their muscles. So now I've told you oxytocin is involved in the in, uh, training the immune system. It's also involved in maintaining and remodeling bones it's involved, it, if you don't have oxytocin, at least a mouse doesn't have it, they have something called um, myopenia, I believe, um, muscle, they lose muscle strength. Oh, so, uh, sarcopenia. Sarcopenia. Right. And so here is, are some of the most obvious important functions that are not restricted to female, but I hate to be political about this, but frankly, if this had not been identified as a female hormone, I think the progress would have occurred earlier. Um, it just didn't get studied much. Now that it's being studied, it's 
everywhere, doing everything. So aside from lactation, I mean, pretty much the functions are, are the same in males and females, right? Well, yeah. I, I know that's a simplistic question, but because other hormones influence it. But in yeah. general, you, said, you know, every cell in the body has oxytocin vasopressin receptors, male or female. Right. And the oxytocin, we'll focus just for now on oxytocin because it gets a little complex when we add its partner into the story. I, I want to point out something that to me is important. Oxytocin is a molecule that did not exist prior to mammals. There are oxytocin-like molecules found in all species of vertebrates, even in invertebrates. But the unique molecule that we call oxytocin and that doctors use to speed up delivery, that molecule is a mammalian molecule. And that was another thing that kind of confused the story at first. But if you stand back and say, whoa, here is a modern molecule capable of doing things that are highly relevant, highly essential to humans, then you start to see something that's just, just magnificent going on. And we got to, in my mind, we have to study it. I became a crusader for its study. I ran conferences. I, you know, I did everything I could to promote young people coming into the field who could take on these problems without the prejudice that had been there before. And you did it. I, I was successful. <laughs> but only, only uh, with a great deal of perseverance. And in my case, absolute conviction that I was right. And I can assure you, lots of people were not convinced. Right. <clears throat> so you, had, were, you had a lot of, so you had a lot of pushback. Still do. Really? But, um, well, conceptually, it's easier now. But if I ask you, where should I go to get federal funding for this work, you would be hard-pressed to find a good place. Mental health research actually forbid, there was a, a rule against funding oxytocin studies. Really? <clears throat> wow. Really instituted by the then director of NIMH, Thomas Sensel. Now, why Tom exactly did that, I'm not sure. He said that it shouldn't be studied until the receptor was better understood. Well, if you don't study something, you're never going to understand it. That meant that most of the work went on outside of the United States. And if you're one of those people who thinks the US should be competing for science sort of being the most powerful science generating engine in the world. Well, we lost it on that one. We lost it big time. Uh, some of the most important studies, in my opinion, are going on in Japan and lots of work in Europe and now in China. And so this molecule will be better understood in the future. I have no 
no doubt about that. But it was a slow, the trajectory, the, the movement toward really full acceptance that this was important was slower than it should have been. It's much slower. So I'd like to focus our second podcast on <clears throat> the social bonding, um, you know, the camaraderie and combat, et cetera, et cetera, how you precipitate oxytocin, our epidemic of social isolation and its consequences. But I want to just finish this podcast off with just listing some of the things that oxytocin does. So we know it causes, or it has to do with lactation and breastfeeding. We know it, it, it can increase bone strength in adequate levels. Um, what are some of the effects of oxytocin on the, on the body? What, why do we need oxytocin? Well, I'm trying in my own mind to simplify this story to the, the most elemental point. And I believe that oxytocin's most fundamental action is that it's a powerful anti-inflammatory. Okay. And we now notice through your work and your husband's work, Steve Portis, that, you know, chronic sustained inflammation just tears down the body. And our common friend, Steve Overman, said this 30 years ago. He's a rheumatologist. And as an orthopedic surgeon, I just thought he was ridiculous that you'd have all these diseases from inflammation. And what I'm embarrassed about now is that we learn about the, you know, the autonomic nervous system um, in medical school, fight or flight versus safety. And we know about heart rate and your heart beats faster, you breathe faster, you sweat in, in fight or flight. But what I completely missed, and I think a lot of clinicians have, is about the role of um, the immune system. So when you're in fight or flight or in defense, you fire up the immune system because you're in hyper alert at every level. And the body just flat out under sustained threat or sustained inflammation starts to break down. Yes. And we now know, again, a lot from our work group that we've been working, at least for me, that the essence of chronic disease, mental and physical, is sustained exposure to inflammation. Mm -hmm. And oxytocin is a profound anti-inflammatory effect. Can you explain that to us about the, um, is it a direct anti-inflammatory? Does it stimulate the vagus nerve? What, how does oxytocin modulate inflammation all of the above okay and that means that the kind of silos of science science that we have fostered over the last half century tend to miss the the fact that here's a molecule with overarching functions it's not only an anti-inflammatory it also can direct stem cells to one of the most, one of the first things I saw in the literature and just kind of mesmerized me was that you could take undifferentiated stem cells, a group then working in Brazil, now at the University of Montreal, they put these stem cells in a Petri dish so the body is not there. There are stem cells that have a tendency to turn to cardiomyocytes, but they do this very, very slowly. They don't have a program. You put extra oxytocin in the dish, you get an enormous increase in cardiomyocytes. These myocytes, these little cells cluster together. They are social and they start to beat in synchrony 
like little hearts in a dish. Now, I saw that paper in 2002, and that probably, among another three or four important findings, were the ones that I felt caused me at least to think that this had to be essential to the repair and restoration of the body after injury. And that we also found in people with punches of tissue, biopsy punches, measuring how quickly they uh, healed oxytocin levels and that the people who had high levels healed more quickly. So these kinds of findings are showing us that there are multiple functions. Now the anti-inflammation piece I keep coming back to because I think it might've been there first before multicellular organisms. So remember they're oxytocin-like molecules from basically the beginning of time almost, okay? So when I, I love to think about cosmology and how the, that's not the right word. When you, you study how the universe formed, well, the earth was a very hostile place. And in order for life to exist on earth, we had to have oxygen. But once we got oxygen, we got inflammation. And once we had a lot of inflammatory processes, those were great for killing off viruses. And we, they, the things I'm talking about may have just been cells, but the cells had to come up with an anti-inflammatory solution. And if you zoom forward about, I don't know, three plus billion years to current times or to the time when vertebrates came along and mammals came along eventually, you find that to get big, a big body and to maintain that big body, we had to have a balance between fighting off viruses, let's say with inflammation, and then going out of that inflammatory state into a state that would allow us to begin to grow again, to heal, to restore. So that process, that balance is based on extremely fundamental biochemical events that affect everything on earth. And in the process, then along about, let's say, it, it, the estimates vary, but let's say 200 million years ago when mammals started to sort of emerge, they, had, they were there when the dinosaurs were there, but as you probably know, a huge asteroid buried itself in the Yucatan Peninsula and the larger dinosaurs, larger reptiles died. And what was left were these little mammals scurrying around they had an, a big task. They had to grow bigger. They had to be able to eat all kinds of food and all of that. Well, they also had, they had a unique way of reproducing and that was to reproduce through internal fertilization, most of them, their exceptions. And then um, those infants were nurtured by mom. And so this oxytocin, this variation on an 
old anti-inflammatory became part of mammalian reproduction. And indeed, it's extremely important in females. Don't misunderstand me. It's just that's not its only job. But when it got that function of helping a mother mammal gestate. To what? Oh. To gestate, to have pregnancy. Okay. To give birth, because once you have the baby growing inside, you've got to get it to the outside. Oxytocin is important there, as we all know from medicine. But then the smaller the baby, in some ways, the better for the mom, at least. So the mom then gestates and produces a tiny little baby in most rodents. And that baby then is dependent on the mother for food. We call that lactation. But it's also dependent on that mother's involvement with the infant. She may not have a specific attachment, this construct that started me in the field, but she needs to be tolerant, capable of producing milk and tolerant of social interactions because it's a bit of a bother to have something hanging on to your breasts all the time. And so it, that hormone created in some way social tolerance. So we'll talk about this in the next podcast because social isolation is a big deal, <clears throat> but many people have social anxiety. So I'm guessing oxytocin is a factor in decreasing social anxiety. You have sort of catch 22 as you become isolated, you have less oxytocin because it's a social bonding drug. Yeah. So when you're isolated, you have less oxytocin and more social anxiety. You're a little bit of a catch 22 there, right? Yes. And we are more and more looking at anxiety as an autonomic and inflammatory disorder. Right. Uh, not only is it allowing those things to happen, like inflammation, um, but it's, it's counteracting the benefits of sociality. All of this is mushed together. And so the body goes through a kind of, of um, dynamic dance in which it has, it, it, the mammalian body at least, moves from fear and threat, sense of threat, to a sense of safety and the capacity to use others. And as far as I know, it's pretty well accepted that mammal, the, the dominance, if you will, of mammals over the earth was allowed and, and possible because we were capable of being social. Right. Words have a similar process. They use a slightly different molecule and right. called mesotocin. But oxytocin then, in my mind at least, became an enabler for this sociality that we recognize and we experience as physiological autonomic safety. Got Our it. body has lots of ways of detecting that. 
We can feel it if our heart rate's very high. We can feel it if we're having autonomic symptoms like uh, sweating or dry mouth. There's a, it's a little complicated, the autonomic nervous system, of course, but because it's adaptive, so it's got multiple jobs to do. But we have a process that ties us to others. In fact, I've tried to come up with a word that explains this. I called it sociostasis. Got it. Putting together social and rather than just thinking of homeostasis, which the way that construct originally by Claude Bernard was defined and then others that followed him, it, they didn't include social behavior in the construct. They saw the organism as a freestanding entity. And that misconception has hung on for over a century and is part of what you personally have been fighting against as you try to help people see how powerful a sense of social safety is for their entire body, even pain, even their spine, the spine will start to repair itself without surgery if it feels safe. So, so thank you very, very much. <clears throat> I'm anxious to go to the second podcast here in a minute about um, how we generate oxytocin, what we do without it. And it just has really far-reaching effects as far as human behavior, quality of life, and, and, and at all sorts of levels. Um, so let's just summarize what we just talked about is that I'm going to try and you're going to correct me. You have no problem doing that, right? <laughs> no problem. So for, okay, so oxytocin is a, one of the oldest molecules in the body. Um, do you call it a molecule or home, hormone? Uh, technically, a hormone is something produced in a gland that acts on a target tissue. Oxytocin is a hormone, but much more. It's a molecule. That's just a structural word that says it's got some elements in it, carbons and so forth. Right. Oxygen. So it's got receptors all over the body. Every tissue body has um, these oxytocin receptors. Historically, medicine, I graduated in 1979, which when oxytocin research was just starting compliments of Sue Carter. So we thought about lactation, pregnancy, and Sue pointed out that really the fact that you get connected to females um, really probably held back research pretty dramatically and is still, um, still not happening very well. So oxytocin is a very potent anti-inflammatory. It occurs with social connection that we'll talk about in a second. She's the one that actually identified what a critical factor is in social connecting, both in creating it and promoting it. And so it's highly anti-inflammatory. It helps wounds heal, wounds heal. It helps bone strength. Um, it helps your sense of well-being in a big way. It's a drug that promotes a sense of safety as opposed to a sense of threat. And it's incredibly, well, it's, again, one of the oldest hormones in the body also, correct, Sue, as far as mammals? Well it depends on whether you use the term oxytocin broadly, in which case the oxytocin-like molecules are extremely old, or if you're talking about the specific compound that mammals have, then it's the most recent, the I most see. modern. <clears throat> right. But anyway, it's very ubiquitous throughout the body, very critical. Um, how did I do there, Sue? Did I summarize that pretty well? Yes. 
<laughs> okay. Ubiquitous. Pleiotropic is the word scientists like to use, meaning. I'm sorry, what's the word? Pleiotropic? P L E I T R O P I C. This means it has, multiple, it has multiple functions depending on the circumstances, correct? That's well put. <laughs> okay, um, so any final words for the audience? And we appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, all right. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sue Carter, for being on the show today and for taking us on a deep dive of the molecule oxytocin, its evolutionary history, and its role in human health, healing, and well-being. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.